Hello, everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Existentialism is a philosophy that takes a deeply introspective look at the act of being. It could be deduced that the conclusions one might arrive at stem from the personal experiences of the philosopher in question. Thus, while Soren Kierkegaard provided the basis of existentialism within the framework of Christianity, Jean-Paul Sartre provided a much different view within the same school of thought. Today, we look at those thoughts and the man himself. Okay, so this is kind of part two in what is going to be a four-part series on the philosophers that are um, kind of big players in existentialism, and we're going in chronological order. So, um, you know, there's there's some hemming and hawing between uh, scholars on who's the the father of existentialism, yes. yeah. but um, it doesn't really matter because we're we're going to cover them both. So now, <laughs> um, Sartre is um, considered that to have that title by. Um, some scholars. So we'll kind of take a, a look at a look at him the same way we looked at Kierkegaard and examine um, some of the similarities and differences in their thought mm. and um, you know how that how that applies to the the school of existentialism. Yeah. So Sartre had a, a pretty interesting life. You want to give us a quick synopsis of it? Yeah, he's it it it's and it's interesting I have to say because as I as I get older um, and I and I and I realized things that I should have realized when I was uh, young, but and probably did because I had professors putting it in front of me. But there's some things that didn't really stick with me. So Sartre uh, lived from 1905 to 1980, which means the last four years of his life, I was in college and I was studying philosophy. Hmm. Now we did. You know, this sounds like the campfire thing. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have all these things where you could just go on and, wow, there he is talking and pick up his speeches. Uh, so it was only later that I actually could indulge in, in that kind of thing. But in his life, he was an extremely complicated fellow and, and driven, I would say. And, and uh, sort of uh, uh, Socratic in his the way he looked at himself, because as he described himself, he was not a handsome devil, uh, and and he he often joked about that. Uh, but he he wrote and wrote and wrote. He wrote uh, practically every kind. And you and I love to write, Joel. So, I, but th- this this is a driven. Writing so screenplays, poetry, uh, philosophical treatises, letters, 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 and speeches, and so on. And he developed habits that helped uh, uh, foundationalize and enable that, so that the man uh, drank. <laughs> I think there there are a couple of places where pe- people will tell you that he he drank something like a quart of vodka or gin or whiskey a day on top of massive quantities of coffee. He uh, he took mescaline sometimes. He he was uh, because he wanted to free himself. He thought from the social structures. But even before that, he was he was doing the uh, amphetamines and barbiturates to keep him awake so he could write, 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 write. Uh, sort of picture this. <laughs> Yeah, jittery uh, <laughs> fellow who, but who also in, in his life he he was he was awarded uh, the the Nobel Prize in 1964, 
and he decided not to accept it because he didn't want to be defined by writing, even after all the writing he'd done, but by actually taking action, which is what his philosophy was about. And so then he he, he went, he did all the various kinds of jobs in the, in the latter part of his life. He was out, well, he was uh, protesting in the Vietnam uh, conflict and he was, he was out doing lots of social action uh, right up toward uh, the end. So he was somebody who kept remaking yeah, himself, yeah, which is what he was talking about in his existentialist philosophy. Yeah, and he had a he had a pretty difficult life too because you know he was French and he was um, you know obviously in France during World War II yeah. and there's stories of him having to eat you know maggot filled rabbits that were sent to him by his uncle in order to survive and all of these different but he was in a prisoner prisoner of war camp for nine months. Oh. And he had, of all things, he was a meteorologist in World War II. Uh, but that it does see there. There's some existentialist stuff going on there too, because it doesn't matter what you you are. You're going to have experiences because of the context in which you find yourself. Yeah, especially in France. You know, there wasn't anybody in France who was unaffected by the war. You know, <laughs> much less you know the rest of the world. But I think that something that we we fail to um, appreciate being in America, and especially, you know, it's highlighted by, um, again, we'll reference current events, even though <laughs> we try not to, you know, the withdrawal in Afghanistan, right? And the entire Afghanistan war. Um, America is geographically and culturally sort of isolated from the rest of the world being where we are. And so in World War II, definitely, um, everybody was affected by that. You know, you had women forced into the workforce. You had, you know caps put on the sort of things you could consume you had all this stuff but it wasn't like being in france <laughs> you know it was com it was a completely different experience um and those things are definitely capable of shaping um people's people's lives yeah. and their views and then when you when you're if you think about as you say you're putting us into this this grim grinding machine of war and in 1943 he writes one of his the most well-known books, not while he was in, you know, the POW camp, but thinking about it, it's in the in the camps that he encountered Martin Heidegger's work as uh, being in time and on being and those kind of things, and, and and so, you know, not everyone would sit and and think about necessarily those things while they're trying to survive. Yeah, so he's definitely a, a, an authentic. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, it realize, it makes you realize that these sort of, I think the thing with public figures, right? And I, I, I don't consider myself a public figure, but I have things that are out there and yeah. I've, you know, people who encounter them, right? Um, you hear something like a guy declining a Nobel Prize and, you know, these sorts of things. And you think, wow, that's just crazy. Once you have some taste of being in the public, though, what you realize is, especially if you're a philosophical person like he was, you don't really want to be defined by one thing. You know, you don't want to be thought of as a philosopher. We saw that with Kierkegaard, right? He said, ah, oh, well, I'm actually more of a poet, you know, mm -hmm. these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And you realize the line between somebody like Sartre and somebody like um, Dostoevsky, right, who was also a prisoner of war and who also was a writer and these sorts of things. And you look at the psychology be behind his work and you think, well, you know, these two guys are probably 
pretty similar in real life, but one is classified as a philosopher and one's classified as a writer. When in reality, the distinction between the two, you know, obviously there's time periods and, and culture and all these different things. They're two unique individuals, but the way that they approached life and the way they approached art was probably pretty similar in a lot of regards. I know? think a lot of the stories that we, <clears throat> and this is not too much of a tangent, but it has things it, because it, it circles right to what you're talking about. And, and it circles back to the existentialist philosophy itself, which we'll get to. But um, I, I knew a gentleman briefly. I don't think I knew him. I can't say that that'd be too much of a claim, but he was part of a church that I once belonged to and his um, wife. She just passed away this uh, a few months ago. She was an amazing person. She, I did know, but her husband uh, was an art teacher. Uh, but he was in a POW camp for some time. And what he did, among other things, to survive, was to teach people to survive by doing art. And that's, you know, a person who lives in Wyoming kind of is not a world-renowned figure or anything, but the, but that's not the point. The point is that art and 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 the humanities of you know, music, writing, art, these are the things that draw out and maintain our humanity. And if you go with the existentialist thought, then then it's required of us to then remake ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I was watching the um uh, in the heart of the sea last night, and I've read, I've read the book about the the Essex and and that sort of thing, and and how it influenced Moby Dick, mm. right? And you think about, okay, Moby Dick is a fictional tale, but it's based on you know this sort of story, and you think about the impact it's had on people's lives and how it's affected people, and in some ways that's coming from real experiences that actual people had, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just goes to show that, you know, life can be a reflection of art and art can have a, a huge impact on on people's lives and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so what were what were some of Sartre's political views? You talked about how in the later part of his life, he, he became pretty politically active. Um, what, what in what ways did he view, um, you know, capitalism or the rest of the world <laughs> politics? What was just general views on things? Cap- capitalism was. Uh, devastating for people as far as Sartre was concerned. And I think many of us uh, still say that. Of course, that sets off all sorts of alarms. Oh, you must be a communist or a worse a socialist or whatever. Those. Let's, let's you know, back away from the labels for a minute and just think about it. He, he, his point of view was that capitalism's purpose was to make people want things, to encumber their lives with things, uh, and to assure them that they had their place in society and that the place would define them. In other words, you're, you're sort of almost born into or are taught to find what it is that your, that your place is in this massive machine that is capitalism. And, and to be encumbered into, uh, to, to never be, uh, to always need objects, purchasable things in order to make yourself feel uh, more human or as if you belong, uh, that's what he decried capitalism for. And I, I can't say I disagree with him about that. You know, there, and no system, and we've talked about this before too, it's not about trying to espouse 
one system as if it could be purely rendered. But that's where he was, is to say capitalism. Marxism, if applied, would be to start a better thing. So he met Fidel Castro. He, he was somewhat disappointed, and more than somewhat, because he, when, when he saw what Castro was uh, doing to human in, uh, people, to people in, in, in persecuting them, then that's not what he was about. And then he, also, he thought probably the, the best political being on the planet in his time was Che Guevara. So he was radical, according to most of measures, but he was living his experience. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, obviously, within the cultural context of America, a lot of why people bristle when you speak badly of capitalism is they, they think of capitalism as being tied into democracy. And like you said, mm-hmm. one of those is an economic system and one of them is a political system. And there's never a true separation between the two in practice. Um, but, in you know, you can have different different ways that these interact, right? And so if you have an opposition to capitalism, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, <laughs> you, that you believe don't in believe in human rights. Exactly, because he, he very much believed in human rights, and that's that's what he was... The core of his philosophy is centered around freedom, essentially. So, yeah. you know, to, to say that he, you know, had this um, aversion to... Um, a democratic government is it would be way off base um but yeah so he had some interesting views and um he even sort of um conceptualized the european union before it happened in one regard you know he saw america you know the west during the cold war he saw the west as being um holding certain ideals and he saw the soviet union as holding other ideals and he said we as europe sort of need to unite and you know not align with either of those two but have our own you know sort of sort of place in, in the world. Um, so that was kind of interesting as well. Yeah. Um, and so he lived in a different time than Kierkegaard, as we were talking, you know, we were talking about the beginning. What do you think drew him to existentialism? He was thinking about Kierkegaard. He was thinking about Heidegger's work. And what he, I think, fundamentally came to was that there is no essence of being a human. The, 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 tra- the traditional, the, often in philosophy, the traditional view is, and this sort of went with that capitalist thing he's talking about, but is, is that you, human essence uh, then determines what the person's going to be. And he reversed that, and he said there... There is no essence. We are the total of our experiences. And, and so that gives us this anxiety-filled uh, freedom. The horror of freedom is that it is entirely on us, in our existence, to make of ourselves what we will, to, to write ourselves, to rewrite. He often used the writing uh, metaphor of uh, to narrate ourselves and then to remake ourselves and reshape ourselves over and over again according to our choices. Our choices define us. They are ours. 
nobody else can make our choices. And he was adamant about that. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the foundational part of his philosophy. And it's also something that is probably the most controversial and that he gets, he gets criticized for as well. And it's not hard to imagine why that might be, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially as we've learned more about psychology as, as time has gone on, you, you know, it's sort of a nature versus nurture argument in a regard. Right. And what he's saying is it's mostly, it's mostly nurture, right? It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter what you've experienced in life, you have the choice to do what you're going to do. And and you must, if you're being authentic, think about those, those choices and not lie to yourself. And that, and there's the, the other great great thing he was talking about was the idea of, of, um, authenticity being, uh, truth, oneself and truth to oneself is not and this is sort of where he borrows some from of Kierkegaard is 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 not to default to the rubrics of and standards of others you know there i think what partly what he gets from heidegger is this idea of uh the sign the 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 people the human beings and and the they-ness of people they uh and so we and so we get that uh Frequently, when we we hear it all the time, we often say it. Right? They say we shouldn't wear white after Labor Day. They say we, they say that you, you're you're going to uh, get sick if you have a vaccine. They, the amorphous, undefinable they, which stands for the expectations of the society, and and Sartre essentially says if you default to that and don't unknowingly accept that consciously accept that then you are lying to yourself and therefore you are not an authentic being hmm. yeah and it's this is one of those things where you know obviously our our main goal here is to sort of stoke people's interest in philosophy and to have them go back and read yeah. the source documents. <laughs> and this is part where it gets sort of of hard, you know, sort of hard if you're a lay person, right? Because you get into his stuff and he says, you know, there's the thing in itself, and there's the thing for <laughs> itself, and then there's others, and you end up with these yeah. weird sentences yeah. where it's like the thing in itself for yeah. itself, <laughs> and you're kind of like trying to suss out, okay, well, what man, what, what is he saying here? Um, but <laughs> there are there are definitely good examples out there that sort of demonstrate what he's talking about. Um, so when he's talking about the thing in itself, right? That's that's us. Hmm. The thing for itself is is sort of our ego, right? Um, and so a good demonstration of that is is time, right? Hmm. We have this idea of time where. Um, you know, maybe if we're, you know, time flies when you're having fun, right? So you're, you're doing something fun and then all of a sudden you look and you're like, oh my gosh, like so much time has passed. Or maybe you're at work and it's a boring day and you're going, oh man, time's really dragging. Well, the time according to the clock is the thing in itself. It's passing at a given time. Mm-hmm. But the time, you know, the thing for itself, your subjective sort of view of the time is this relative thing that that increases or decreases or that sort of thing yes and 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 it's good that you brought that up because we have to remember that that uh, sartre for 
a chunk of his life was like so many others uh, contemporary philosophers was working in the era of relativity hmm. every you know the, 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 the world altering if one paid attention to it views of of einstein and and, and physics and so on <clears throat> play into this so yes you have this this what it is and then what we what we make of it um, and there's a kind of absurdity to that and Sartre was also mm -hmm. talking about the absurd essentially he was saying something like this how could you not see it as absurd you you come into the world it's already made it already has a history you you, you can't take all of that in you can't it, 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 so so it's absurd to think that you can master it all <laughs> and it's it's absurd to think that uh, everything you do is going to outlast history. No, because we don't even remember our you know great grandparents. Usually, we think we have this extended view of things, and we really don't. It's 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 absurd to to live a life toward uh, making yourself uh, being true to your choices, thinking about your choices. But never, uh, never necessarily knowing what those choices have yielded in the lives of people around you. And it's absurd to realize that you're going to die and you have no notion of what your effect has been in any particular sense. So it's absurd, absurd, absurd. But we're cast into this. And, and 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 for him there was is he called it a condemnation we are condemned to be free <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't it be nice and this is why he's referring to other culture wouldn't it be nice to just go to sleep and and do what they say and uh, while he's acknowledging he's, he acknowledges his imperfections all the time it, 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 so it's not like he's saying well i've got it down and i know what i'm doing no that would be absurd yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, we're wandering around doing things thinking that there's some kind of linearity to it when really for the most part there isn't yeah yeah it was funny um i was you know i went on a hike with my brother the other day and we had a long car ride so on the way back we we're listening to a a comedy podcast and one of the sections is where they say um you know would you rather do this or that you know and one of the this or that was would you rather live out your life the way it is now <laughs> or essentially would you rather live in groundhog's day right you live the same day over and over again yeah and one of the guys had an interesting answer he basically said well you know if i was going to live every day over and over again um the family's out the window he's like i'm not putting any effort into parenting or, or being a good husband because tomorrow i'll wake up and it won't be any different you know mm -hmm. and of course my brain working the way it does you know extrapolated that out to our our normal lives anyways right and you think about it you go well, we're, we're kind of all going to die and our kids are going to die. And what effect are we going to have on the universe? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, well, is there even any point in being good parents now? You know, if you zoom out far enough, you know, right? You look at the universe as a whole, you're sort of like, well, what does humanity matter? And that's the existential crisis. It is. What does humanity matter? Yeah. So what matters is only how I conduct myself now by the choices that I make. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't change the universe. It doesn't change anything except it makes my life more authentic. And maybe that, maybe that leads to other lives being more authentic. Probably not. But 
So it's it's not it's it sounds like a selfish thing, but it's but it's but it's about the best parts of self acknowledging that we don't know everything, acknowledging that we can't know everything, acknowledging that most things don't even make any sense, which is frightening to people. People mm-hmm. want everything to make sense. I've, I've encountered so many people, we've talked about this before, who, who want novels that just end nicely. Yeah. Every loose end tied up and, and so on. And, well, okay, there's some fun novels that are written that way, and meaningful ones, but but that's really, if we're honest, it's not how life works. <laughs> Right, we get kicked in the shins every every few minutes sometimes, and well, where did that go? Oh, that's not how I planned the day. Too bad. What are you going to do with it now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and um, my brother and I were talking about that yesterday as well. Um, in the context of music and of not, you know, writing, we're saying, okay, you know, if you look up online how to write a perfect song, you're going to end up with the most boring song there is. If you look up how to write a book and you just follow a Campbellian arc. It's going to be boring, right? You know, you have to throw in some twists here or there, or you have to, some something different has to happen. Because in real life, very rarely is, is there a Campbellian arc, right? And you usually have several storylines going on at the same time, and they overlap, and usually you're starting another one before you can finish the first one, and it's mm-hmm. just this huge, complicated thing. And, you know, up until just recently, um, tragedies were a very common literary trope right stories would end in a way that would be completely unsatisfying to modern readers you know you need to be like well why did i even watch this or read this you know it's just terribly depressing um but yeah all of that stuff and is, what were you looking for by watching or reading this there's where the right, questions yeah going. yes were you wanting to just be told that the world is all nice were you, were you wanting to just to shut off and have entertainment sometimes we do I, I like an Avengers movie just fine, even though there's a lot of tragedy in in even something that is ultimately a pop cultural machine generated by you know. It, so so yeah, it, it, and some people get really upset if all stories aren't that way. Yeah, and this this does kind of hit at at the core of some of Sartre's philosophy because Ooh. yes to make things even more complicated he had the thing in itself the thing for itself and then later on he introduces the other yeah. and he says that actually you know our our conscious reflection is is the other it's not even the thing for itself you know <laughs> so you have this whole um very complicated thing going on but the another it another good way to explain it you know and a way to sort of simplify it is with an example you know and he talks about how emotions, you know, emotions aren't just some um, unconscious thing that springs up in us. He said emotions are intentional as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so an example that I thought up that's personal to me is, you know, one thing that I'll notice is if the more stressed I get, the more emotional I get. Right. And this is, <laughs> that's probably a true across, you know, human humanity. Yeah. Yeah. So every once in a while, if I'm if I'm particularly stressed. I find myself having to talk myself down from, you know, simple things, right? If I pull a cup out of the cupboard and another cup falls over and clatters onto the floor. And you start growling. Right, yeah. My reaction to that is going to be very different depending on how stressed I am. You know, if I'm feeling good, I'll just reach down, scoop it up, put it back in the cupboard, not give it a second thought. If I'm really stressed, there's going to be a string of you know obscenities describing yeah. how this cup had intentionally <laughs> disrupted your life. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so that's what Sartre would say was that 
you know, part of an existential dilemma and probably part of his um, resistance to capitalism is when you sit there and you suddenly realize that you're surrounded by objects that are completely indifferent to your existence, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. the cup that fell wasn't trying to intentionally harm you. The cup doesn't care if you're there or not, you know? And so emotions, when he's talking about emotions being intentional, that's what he's talking about is, you know, you, you're putting this effort into giving something that has no intentionality in intentionality. And what you're doing by doing that is essentially saying that an objective reality isn't out there, but you're trying to make reality based off of your internal state, which is something that he, that he was rallying against. In, right? in his, in his novel nausea. So there's an, <laughs> there's a great name for a novel, but it's true to what he was talking about. It, 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 there's a, there's a quotation. In the, the character says this, I am alone in the midst of these happy, reasonable voices, all these creatures spending their time explaining, realizing happily that they agree with each other. In heaven's name, why is it so important to think the same things all together? (laughs) (laughs) And and so, yeah, sometimes we think the whole universe is tumbling against us. And and, and ultimately that realizes, and I don't make light of this in what I'm about to say, but it makes us, it should help us can help us realize that we don't use the word tragedy terribly well. It's so overly applied that it really, it's, a, there's no tragedy at all. It's a, it's not a, it's, it, you'd be hard pressed by the definitions of, of dramatic tragedy or, or uh, to think that a, driving across a bridge and a flood takes it out while the car's on the bridge and people are gone. It's a horror. Human life is lost. It's only a tragedy if there was some decision being made by the person going across that bridge who said, despite the fact of being warned that that bridge is going to go out, I know I can get us across that bridge. And the hubris, the the pride of thinking that one can outthink nature, that could be tragic. It's a sadness, it's a loss, it's a horror, but it's not the landslide comes and the village is in the wrong place. And, and we mourn for the life lost in that village, but the landslide didn't do it, as you just said before. It just, it's the, it's the nature of things. Too much rain brings loose soil down. And, and, but that, of course, would rankle with people who think there's a deterministic nature to the entire universe, that everything happens for a reason. Well, that's another, sorry, but the, yeah, the, and that's the kind of, uh, attempt at soothing people into sleep uh, mm-hmm. that to protect them from the nature of the universe as it is, is to let them think that everything happens for a reason. Well, if everything happens for a reason, even if I don't understand why it happened, it's okay because it happened. And and rather than engaging with it, you just go with it. Right. Yeah. And that's why he, he sort of um, shied away from metaphysics and, and sort of, um, geared himself more towards ontology because he looked at metaphysics as providing answers to unknowable questions. You know, whereas in ontology, you know, you're trying to figure out, you know, the reasons for things. Um, so we've been talking about him for a while. Um, and, and obviously we talked about Kierkegaard all last week. 
what do you think are some key similarities and differences between their philosophies in how they fit within existentialism? First, maybe even foremost, Sartre wasn't a Christian. <laughs> and so he he wasn't thinking in that kind of context as as Kierkegaard was. They weren't poles apart on how they were applying the philosophy, but ultimately what was behind it, <laughs> or there's nothing behind it. That, that's really the, the, the grand difference between them, I think, to start the conversation. Okay. Yeah, and that's, you know, I, do you think, so like we were just talking about, um, the determinism Kierkegaard is a Christian do you think that there was do you think there was a determinism in his thinking in Kierkegaard's yeah uh, well uh, in this I'd have all sorts of people trashing me for this and righteously but uh, <laughs> for me thinking do I think that it, ask it again is the determination determinism so, yeah so with Kierkegaard working within the framework of Christianity do you think that he had some level of determinism behind his behind his thinking. Yeah, I think that there was because if you, even if you believe in the watchmaker God who winds up the universe, universe winds it up and then walks away to do something more interesting and lets it run, uh, there's still a determination, a determinism built into the mechanism the the um, teleology why what is the use of a thing the teleology so form and function all those kind of things cluttered together but so a, a rock is a rock but if a culture picks it up and values it by saying i can mash wheat the rock becomes a wheat masher <laughs> um we know that the phrase hammer, uh, you know, any tool becomes a hammer or the variants of, of that. If you use every tool like a hammer, all you've got is a hammer. And, uh, and so I think, going back to what we talked about last week, that there is, when you accept that things are absurd, and Kierkegaard was talking about this, really, and and the, maybe everything you do means almost nothing, but you still go ahead because you were doing it because God is there somewhere, or you have faith. Kierkegaard talks about faith. Sartre, no. Yeah, I think looking at um, the two of them from Sartre's framework, right, yeah. you have this thing in itself, the thing for itself and the other, you know, he had this view that you couldn't really, you know, you, you couldn't really relate to others because you didn't have the, the perspective of them being the thing for itself. So with, when it comes to the universe, Kierkegaard definitely saw that it related to God as an other, whereas in Sartre's framework, there are there is no God, so there is no other to relate to that has a responsibility for the universe. Right. That last part, absolutely, it has no responsibility to the universe. Now, there are 
others, which is what happens when you engage in a, an authentic relationship where you're not trying to, as he put it, own the other, <laughs> but giving the other freedom and still wanting to be. There's a point of relationship starts as where you where you you be, grow out of yourself. You you want to be all there is for that other. So you're not just one person among many, one object among many. Suddenly you're everything. And that doesn't work out so well, usually. And, and so he wrote a lot about relationship that way. But but the, but the, I guess another way to put the, the essence of it is um, that ultimately you live your life, uh, Kierkegaard, uh, not following doctrine. The book says to do this, not philistinism in any any sense. So we follow these rules, and therefore something works out. Um, but to live the what you find in the stories, to rethink the the sacred stories, and so on. Sartre would probably say that those stories, because he was a writer, those stories have value in the sense of are you countering the story by questioning it by thinking about it by uh, not just oh well that story is i'm going to adopt that because everybody says that i should <laughs> uh, but it's not about god it's just about does that help me make a choice yeah yeah sart wasn't he, i don't think he was a cartesian dualist but he had that same sort of questioning um mm -hmm aspect to him do you think we should say more about do you think we should sort of flesh out what he had to say about freedom and authenticity or do you think we've covered that pretty well um i think you know i i don't want to burn anybody out but i <laughs> i guess the authenticity part well we can dwell on that a little because it's a word people like these mm -hmm. days again um, i'm trying to nutshell it to, to, Authenticity requires making the choices to make yourself and making those choices for reasons that seem, at the moment, the, the ones you must make because you must <laughs> and, and not because somebody else has told you to so to be authentic is is always to be realizing the absurdity of life uh, to be to totally embrace the nowness i don't think that's too vague a term i think most people mm -hmm. would get with it, the nowness of things uh, and, and thus knowing full well that you might make very different choices 10 minutes from now because yeah. you don't know what's coming <laughs> yeah yeah it's an important thing to get to try to get right because he had he had a complex view on the past and the present and the future yeah um but yeah he also had a complex view on and i i understand why you're having a hard time articulating <laughs> it um yeah we're trying to get it right for the listeners though so his view on ego right he was saying that you know it it, you don't want to 
you don't want to align yourself with your ego. Right. So what what sort of relationship did he say was an ideal? You, it, well, let's start with what he said about us. And one of the many things he said about authenticity. If you seek authentic, if you seek to be authentic, you seek to be authentic. Uh, start again. If you seek to be authentic, for the sake of being able to say, "Look at me, I'm authentic." Then you're being inauthentic. <laughs> it's almost in there's there's a kind of Eastern spirituality to it. I, he'd reject the term spirituality, and I'd accept that. But but still, the philosophically, if you aim to be something for the sake of being that for others to see and say, "Look at him," then you've lost it. You, you you're not. It doesn't matter what others think. It, what matters is. Are you being honest with yourself? That's really the core of authenticity. Are you being consciously honest with with what you do? So if so, if you go through life and you say, "Well, I," all of us do this, right? So he's not being better than anybody else, kind of thing. It's, but I, I, I could have seen myself doing another life, but I, I had to stay here in this area because X, Y, and Z. And that, and, and Sar would say, no, no, you didn't have to stay. The authentic person says, was I just telling myself that to feel better and not make the choices that I would have made? Then that sounds good and is soothing it over, but you're not telling yourself the truth. You know <laughs> bloody well that you wanted to do this. Uh, and, and so that's what he's getting at. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we all make those choices all the time. Hmm. And, you know, for instance, having this having this podcast, right? You know, if we look at it, we could have it on the one level where, okay, I just want to have a a podcast, right? <laughs> and so, yeah. and I want people to think of me as a podcaster. Mm-hmm. Or it can be the other part where I think, well, I I want to be a philosopher, and I want to I want people to think of me as you know as having a good philosophy podcast. Or there can be the part where I just think, you know what? I just like philosophy and I just want to do it and I don't really care who's listening. So I'll have a philosophy podcast, right? And those aren't three real cut and dry scenarios either. You know, like I've probably felt all three of those at some different point. Of course. And like Sartre was saying, making decisions, you know, what kind of decisions you make or your motivations behind them can change from from time to time. Um, but the goal would be that that latter option, right? Would be okay, I'm doing a philosophy podcast because I feel that I don't have any other choice. I, I love philosophy. I love conversations. And I just want to have them. And you want to know what? If nobody's listening, or even if I don't post them to the internet, I'm doing it because this is authentic to me. That's right? where we started. And that's where we, I, I think where we still are. Yeah. I can't, the, the, one of the best parts of my week is doing this with you and and we and we and we do tell you know we we know that we have people listening a few people here there and all yeah, on, on all sorts of continents <laughs> um and we're glad if people listen if it gives them some kind of interest or joy to listen but no one expects people to listen just because they have to you know i think this is you're, you're in education you're, you're gonna have your doctorate uh, you're working hard at this stuff and and I've been a teacher my entire adult life. And and 
doing the podcast makes me feel as if I have the opportunity to be a teacher. But even that's not authentic. The authentic part is, am I being a teacher in a different way? Have I taken a, a catastrophic change in, in my circumstances? Have I taken the opportunity? He talked about opportunity. Everything can be an opportunity. You know, and I know I'm going sideways on this, but it often rankled me the, the self-help books, the, the workshops that were brought to colleges and other places so that the administrative language became laced with the term opportunity. We all have, everything is an opportunity. And that was like, to me, anti-existential because it was using the word opportunity to cloak decisions that were being taken and not honestly presented. So there's opportunity and opportunity. If you embrace an opportunity because you see it as a way of making yourself, keeping yourself more real, then you, you know the difference inside. And that's why I've, I've, I've always appreciated that you, you reached out and we've done this. But it's not a self-congratulatory thing. It's just saying, this is how... We're doing it at this moment, in this day. You have dozens of other ways that you do it. And so it's not a competition, right? And, and that's, I think that's also what Sartre would say to the, uh, the 21st century folks that we all are. How people compare their, their resumes sometimes or their, or their, their work days. So now there's this competition to prove I'm always working. You know, somebody says, well, I had to work 15 hours today and I just don't have time to do this and so on. Okay, and, and that's legitimate. But if it becomes, I'm, I, I have to work and it's not really always the work, it's just that's my excuse not to engage with somebody else. Well, I worked Saturday. Yeah, well, I worked Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, well, and is this a badge of honor? Right. This is capitalism, making people work so hard because it pays people like they're still in the 1970s. And we're supposed to extol the virtues of all of this. That's being asleep. That's not being authentic. Rather than just say, you know, this really could be better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what's funny is that um, Sartre actually used the term conversion mm. in talking about some of this, right? And Go that, for it. That Go idea it. of it was this, this thought that, you know, you have these experiences that are authentic to yourself and it changes the way um, that, that you live. And like you said, I, that's, you know, that's, that's what's important for why, why we're doing what we're, what we're doing yeah. and why, why do anything the way I do, right? I could spend, you know, all kinds of time editing this podcast, right? When you or I say a word wrong, I could go and I could take it out. If we're, we have a long pause where we're thinking about something, go and take it out. <laughs> if I say something that's contradictory to something I said earlier in the episode, I can go back and fix it, but that's not authentic, is it? No. You know, so Instead, I let the whole thing play out and I let people see how messy it is. I let them see the stupid things we say. I let them see the, <laughs> the brilliant things we say yeah. because that's authentic, right? And I do the same thing with music. You know, I don't sit there and, and try to get everything just right and so that it's this perfect record. I try to I try to record things and I try to mix things in such a way that is it ideal? Yes. It, it, it's an ideal performance. But it's an ideal performance that could be replicated in a live scenario. You know, I have one set of drums, one set of bass, 
two guitars, a vocal, you know, so that it's not this artificial thing. It's something that's an authentic piece of music. And so, yeah, this idea that, you know, they're, the motivations behind doing things for the way they are. This is why I think that even though there are a lot of naysayers about this and, and the big guns in the field and, and all of these, these positions that get, that they take, <laughs> um, for fine reasons, there, there's authoritative academic scholarly work. And I, I'm of that world. There is authority. There are well-taken positions that have been well-researched. And here I am just you know, talking as a reader, as, as, as a teacher, a former teacher, on, on an introductory level, right? Knowing full well that I could turn around and find a, a page that I go back to this afternoon and say, well, yep, got that wrong. But <laughs> did, it, did the universe end? No. Uh, what, if I'm able to say, got that wrong, going to try to uh, re- rethink that, that's the path I think Sartre would have us on. This is why I think existentialism is so desperately uh, uh, with us. Yeah, because in, in this moment, because this is what it boils down to, right? You and I have a responsibility to be authentic and to make choices in this moment about the conversations we have. But that's not where it ends. You know, a listener can't can't be asleep and take what we say right, and apply right. this truth. They have a responsibility. Right. To be authentic and to to think for themselves and to make choices and to integrate. and to keep questioning. Right. right. Exactly. And, and, and to say, well, OK, I buy and I don't buy it. There's a capitalistic metaphor. We have. Uh, yesterday on, on NPR, I was listening to Science Friday, as I often do there. There was a discussion by a, a, a very authoritative scientist who was talking about. The essentially, it's, there's a, a lot of fancier names for it, but the conveyor belt, which of of water circulation in the Atlantic, a planetary sized process, and so the salinity and and the the, the heat and cold twisting this conveyor, bringing cold water to the warm, bringing warm water to the cold, movement, which which keeps life moving in the ocean and it is measurably slowing down it has slowed down 20 percent in the past 50 years and and the 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 questioner was saying well how do you measure this and she's presenting the data and and can we be can we can we pinpoint a date when it's all going to come to a stop and she said no there are too many factors for that but if things continue as they are Roughly, it will. It could well come to a stop within the next forty years. And if that engine stops, we have no technology or capacity to start it up again. Maybe in a few thousand years, but not not now. And she's talking about the the size and immensity of this. And while I'm driving along, thinking of this, I'm thinking, start, start. Why? Because it's a vast universe. It's a vast machine. <laughs> it's absurd to think that we can, we can just fix it. But it's not absurd to think we could make more authentic choices about how we actually acknowledge this and, and what do we contribute in small ways in our lived lives toward maybe 
thinking that machine keep going. Uh, but but she and the and the, the questioner finally said, "Well, where is your point of hope in all of this?" And she said, "I don't have that. I I see no way for this." Not to happen unless everyone now takes everything that's been said for decades and applies it as a priority. And I don't think that's going to happen, she says. And he said, do you lose sleep at night about this? And she said, it drives me crazy some nights. But I, so I retreat. I, I go to, she essentially said, I, I go to sleep on this. I go to something else and be entertained. I just said, there's what I'm doing about this is being a researcher and trying to put the information out there and encourage people to do something with it. That's my way of coming to terms with, have I done anything? Hmm. And I thought, that's so totally existential on the scale, the, the individual human, the immensity of this. Every second, the heat heat that's generated by this current in the ocean is over a hundred nuclear reactors. Hmm. I didn't know that. She was presenting the data about this. The, The amount of water that we're talking about moving every second is a hundred Amazon rivers. And so the hubris it would be to say, well, we can fix that. <laughs> yeah, there's this, this weird thing. And, and, and I think you're right to, to think of SART when you think of it is, you know, you have some people on one end of the political spectrum who are denying science. And it's using those, those emotions we were talking about before, right? Mm-hmm. That idea of the, the cup dropping out of the cupboard and getting very angry. They're using that as a justification for not um denying the research or not doing you know the due diligence on it to figure out that it's a problem and you have people on the other side of the spectrum who you know might be relying on science to fix the problem mm-hmm. and that's inauthentic because so like we were talking about earlier you're, you're just sort of going to sleep right you're taking the responsibility off of yourself you're putting on some somebody else to do something about it mm-hmm. and star had a lot of he had a lot of insight into the psychology and the ethics behind these sorts of things. Like we were talking about with, with Kierkegaard last week, right? That the bystander effect. Yeah. You see something yeah. terrible happening and you just assume, well, somebody else is doing something, right? You know, yes. I, I don't have to take any action because somebody somewhere is doing something you about this. You are your era. That's essentially what he was saying. You are within the zeitgeist, within the the cluster of things that formulate your time. You can't live in some other time yet, <laughs> right? You, 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 and so uh, he said this about the way he's talking about World War II. And so, like it or not, this is your war. This is all of our war. This is not the war of some people who get sent over to some. This is everyone's war. You, you, Embrace it and you do something. You make the choices within that context. So it's not like you have endless choices. There's the other part of this is you are condemned to be in this time period, whatever that time period happens to be. And thus, the choices you make are in some ways formulated by the context of that time. Not determined by it, but there are some limitations. Uh, the, the, you, you can't just 
Well, I mean, you, you can. You can close your eyes and go to sleep and say, nope, I don't exist. Nope, this isn't happening. But, but if you're being authentic, you're making your choices, but they're still within that context. Yeah, it comes back to what we were saying at the beginning about how, you know, a lot of philosophy had looked at it as an essence and then an existence, whereas mm-hmm. Sartre was saying, no, you exist first and then you're in the essence of your sort of time period and things. So what was the relationship between phenomenology and, and existential existentialism for, for Sartre? All right, so phenomenology is talking about encounters with objects. And what you make of the relationship with those, uh, the encounters, what is, what is that? This is what's telling you about the world, <laughs> the senses. <laughs> All right. And so that's not inconsistent with what he says about the objects of the world, as you were referencing before, the, the, and I, the stone, the landslide, rain, um, even other people who we, we don't, uh, objectify and yet they are a material <laughs> that we that we encounter and and our senses do guide us through that but he w- he went beyond i think he's going beyond the five senses to me he, he was if you're acting if you're acting in, in in the interior based on uh trying to suss out what is the right choice for you you're taking in data. <laughs> he never rendered it in this way, but I mean, but you're taking in data, but um, you're also sometimes thinking way beyond the, the physical. If you're thinking about the universe, just the physical universe, that's enough. But if you're thinking, uh, I'm alone and I was tossed into this, there's a little bit more than just the five senses going on there. Mm-hmm. I wish we had time to get into it because it's super interesting. <laughs> His thoughts on imagination, right? Ah, and how imaging yep. comes into the brain and stuff. And that's actually a huge part of his philosophy. We, we Maybe we should try to say something about it before we end. Yeah, just I agree. Go, I you go, go for it. I'll, call, I'll clarify where I, if I need to. Yeah. And I'm, I wasn't real clear on it. I'll, I'll be yeah. honest. So all right. All right. yesterday so, was my birthday. So that's an existential crisis <laughs> in itself. <laughs> so I didn't get time to do all as much research as I want. That's okay. So let's go with this and happy birthday again. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. You, you and your brother's birthday are so yeah. uh, close. Uh, here's one of the things he said. No, no matter well, he wrote a book about called the, the imagination, essentially, no matter how long I may look at an image, I shall never find anything in it but what I put there. Now, you see, the phenomenologist would say, well, you're, you're taking it red, you're taking it green, you're taking it whatever. Uh, but what I put there, it is in this fact that we find the distinction between an image and a perception. When I encounter a song by you, I, of course, know it's your voice. I'm hearing that. I know it's your creation. I'm hearing that. But I don't stay in that spot for the duration of the song. I'm listening to the lyrics. I'm to feel how the music moves me. When I see a, a piece of art, whether it's one that I've made, like this week with my art lessons, uh, or uh, grand pieces by all sorts of individuals, which 
I get to study. We all get to look at our. We, we, you'd have to be hard pressed to just ignore the fact that art is around you everywhere. Uh, but if you look at that and you say, what's that supposed to be? Sartre would say, I think that, the, that that's the equivalent of saying, I'm waiting for people to tell me what I'm supposed to think mm. and make my choices. And if you say, that's a piece of crap, it's a bunch of metal stuck on a street. All right, and why do you have such a visceral reaction to that? To just label something without going into it is not authentic <laughs> for, for him. So the imagination is about what do we f- place? What do we find? What do we superimpose because of our choices? Yeah, and, and art is real interesting that way, especially if you are an artist, right? Because I remember um listening to music before i was a musician right and it was really all about the feeling that it inspires Mm -hmm. and then i became a musician and then i learned several different instruments and then there there came a point where allison i realized i could appreciate music in in several different ways right so Mm -hmm. i could i could still listen to it for the feeling that it had but i could also listen to it and dissect okay well what is the the guitar chords being played. Okay, mm-hmm, well, what mm-hmm. is the rhythm that the drums are playing? What, Certainly, is, what yeah. sort of bass guitar and amp combo is creating this sound? You know, these these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And so that that falls into that image versus perception kind of kind of uh, categorization. And the same thing yeah. can be done with art, brush right. strokes. And that yeah, imagination is not the same as perception because perception is what we take in. Imagination is what we make of it. And his big, his big quandary there is, is like you said, if you're asking what's that supposed to be, <laughs> you know, and that's, that is the big thing with art, right? Is I, like I've talked about before, lots of times I like to write lyrics in such a way that, okay, there, there may have been an initial meaning for me, mm-hmm. but I don't want to spell it out for listeners, right? You know, I, I, I try to cloak it in as much, you know, aesthetic and uh, abstract metaphor as I can so that to me, I can listen to the song and and know what I was writing about, but then I can have, and I've had five or six different people come up to me with five or six different explanations for what the lyrics are about. That that's what I love about it. Right. You know, I'm not trying to tell people that's not the enjoyment that I get out of music, giving my message to people. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My enjoyment of it is, is putting out something out there and not having it be a secret code because I don't, I don't ever really want people to decipher what it was, but I just want to see what people make of it for themselves. You know? Yeah. This is what uh, people often approach poetry with. I, I, you know, I, I play as I do in a lot of things, writing uh, some poetry. I'm not a published poet. I'm not authenticated that way, (laughs) you know, but I can appreciate poetry. I'm a literary, that's been my study. My, old life is literature and, and but i know poets who if not make their livelihoods entirely out of it do have that authentication and it, and and we have a, a couple of whom are you know we're close we have conversations it's not like oh poet capital p therefore can't talk uh, but when you when you try something uh, then it becomes a whole lot more immersive 
mm-hmm. and, and it takes your thoughts places. I, I do, because I'm dense, I think, but I do have a fundamental uh, disagreement with with Sartre on the idea. He said you can you can never learn anything from imaginary objects hmm. because you've constructed those objects through uh, uh, perceptions, perhaps through experience, experiential things, but ultimately you've constructed that imaginary thing in your, in your mind. And therefore it's not going to yield something you can learn from. And I, I think I disagree. <laughs> yeah, yes. I almost wonder if you could empirically say that because I mean, what I think about is black holes, right? Mm. You know, so we had the mathematics to describe them. Yeah. But mathematics is really, it, it, you're interpreting something, right? You ha- It's data, and then you're, you're trying to imagine it, imagine what it's like in reality mm-hmm. <laughs> without having the technological ability to actually observe it, actually picture it. But the level of precision with which we were able to predict these things I think we learned a whole lot out of something that we weren't able to actually, out yeah. of something that was essentially imaginary until yes. we had the technology to perceive it. And 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 this is reminding me that I also need to go back and read the imagination and its translation again, which means I'm not really reading Sartre. I'm reading somebody's take on, somebody's, mm-hmm. not take on, somebody's translation. And therefore, it itself is a <laughs> secondhand or thirdhand experience of, but anyway, yeah, the perception as opposed to the imagination, that's really, to go back to what you were asking about phenomenologically, uh, the perceptions come through the senses, but the imagination does over overlays and applies and finds things. Yeah. All right. I think that we did as as best as we could trying to <laughs> trying to figure out what what Sartre was about and i'm sure as we we look at our other two existential philosophers we'll be able to to add some clarity to his point of view within the framework of existentialism as a whole as approached by these other people you know what i would love i'm going to add this before you close because i just it, it just occurred to me and 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 if i didn't do that it would just be oh let's just follow the same old pattern Suppose that some that that a, a, a teacher of philosophy in a university heard this, and, and and listened and said, "Oh no, no, no! They've they've gotten it wrong. Wouldn't it be wonderful then to have students listen to uh, ten minutes of this and then say, no, let's talk about where these guys are, but where they've got it, uh, perhaps somewhat accurately, and 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 where they don't, uh, because there's another authentic." exchange yeah that's what i hope uh, a lot you know and i this comes back to when we were talking about epiphenomenalism right i realized um when i was talking about my views on it i talked about how an amygdala is an epiphenomenalist organ but then i think that i sort of implied that the prefrontal cortex wasn't <laughs> but that led leads into the brain being the soul you know, I, ID behind it. Yeah. What I realized is I articulate it in such a way that people would be like, well, wait, what is this guy even talking about? Cause he's still saying that the brain is responsible for all of consciousness, <laughs> but I hadn't fleshed out my, the thoughts that were in my head. I hadn't said everything that was in there when I did it. Right. And my immediately, my immediate thought was, oh my gosh, there's going to be people that hear this and they're going to think, oh, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's an idiot and stuff. But then my next no. thought was, I hope that somebody would just listen to it and think, well, maybe he'll figure that out later, or maybe it wasn't his full thought, 
Or, well, if that's what he's saying, maybe there is something to epiphenomenalism and I, I should sort of think about it from this perspective or that sort of thing. Well, that's the human. And that's what we were talking about, right? That's, that's, the that's the authentic desire is we're not, we don't want to sit here and say that we're authorities on philosophy because the fact is there are no authorities on philosophy. <laughs> that's why philosophy is a, is a study within itself. There is a systematic framework, but by necessity, it's addressing questions that cannot be empirically solved through science or through reason or rationality, you're using a framework to try to address things that are beyond the scope of human understanding. And along that way, you're going to make mistakes or you're going to say things that are controversial, even if they can't be disproved. Um, but the hope is not that somebody thinks of us as a f- authorities on philosophy, but the hope is that people just think about philosophy. That's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I look forward to... Uh, Continuing on with our our existentialism, and until next time, keep pondering.